Hey there, folks. Welcome to the Barstool Investor, the resource for Californians that invest in out-of-state real estate. We're a community of real estate enthusiasts, newbies and pros, all navigating the world of assets and strategies, aiming for one thing, financial freedom. Grab your favorite drink, pull up a bar stool, and let's dive into the world of real estate investing, one casual conversation at a time. Now let's get started with today's episode. Hi, Brian. Welcome to the Barstool Investor Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, yeah, I know you've done a lot of things, uh, Brian, in the real estate space and have been able to, to scale up uh, pretty quickly, I think, on several different fronts. You know, you've done a lot of out-of-state investing. You've done a lot of uh, burrs, a lot of rehabs, uh, and in a relatively short order. And, you know, you've built up uh, a coaching and an education platform as well. So, uh, really excited to, to have this conversation and share with our listeners, uh, you know, your your journey and uh, how you've been able to scale up on all of those fronts so quickly. No, definitely. Likewise, I'm I'm happy to uh, share all the nuggets that I've learned along the way. Yeah, cool. Well, Brian, I think just to get started, maybe we can rewind the clock before you got into real estate investing. What was your journey? How did you come to real estate investing in the first place? Uh, really a buddy of mine kind of pulled me into real estate, like a, a very close friend, you know, we would talk all the time. And as we, uh, started getting more into like real estate conversations, it just turned to all real estate, like all the time, no weather, no sports, just straight real estate. So, uh, even as I started off, when I graduated from Columbia university, I got into financial planning. So I was working a hundred percent commission, um, in insurance and annuity sales and investment, um, uh, sales. And, um, Every dime I saved, every you know bit of commission I could get, I was just saving and putting in a separate account to buy my first property. So I did a FHA house hack, uh, got my first deal. It's a property I still hold to this day. And I really just never looked back. I kept scaling, uh, iterating, got into full gut renovations. And then that led to the birth strategy. And that's really when uh, things started to accelerate. Yeah. So were you kind of starting with just a typical buy and hold thinking you were going to buy some rentals and just turnkey cash flow out the gate and just kind of hold those in perpetuity. Yeah. You start off like everyone else. Like we, we all start with, I'm going to uh, save some pot of money and then take that money and put it as a down payment uh, on a buy and hold multifamily property. That's typically the first idea that we all get. Uh, what you then run into is uh, you might do that once, two, three times, maybe four times. And then the banks will cut you off because your debt to income ratio will get out of whack uh, to where they can't get those uh, Freddie Franny, uh, Freddie Fanny backed uh, loans. So now you have to go to a portfolio lender. And as you start to get more advanced, you start to see the value of doing more of a burst strategy and recycling the capital instead of trying to save. No matter who you are, uh, if your entire investment strategy is on taking large sums of money and putting them down on properties, you're going to go broke. You're going to run out of money. So you need a better strategy that is more scalable. And that's where like the burst strategy or coming up with some combination of uh, buying and flipping some houses for short term profits and then parking that capital and um, to buy and hold properties will start to kick in. You'll have to scale to that level. Where exactly were you in your journey when you kind of had that realization of like, hey, this doesn't, you know, I'm going to run out of capital or I've already run out of capital to deploy or my debt to income ratio is maxed out. How many properties was that for you? I think it was two. You know, your first one, you do a FHA house hack and you're like, whoa, I'm the man. Like you just 
you plop down like five to 10 K and you get this big house and you're like, man, this is easy. And then uh, the second one, they're like, yeah, we're going to need 30% down. Now there is a new, a new wrinkle that just came out where they're, you know, doing some multifamily uh, deals. I think that goes into effect next month. Um, like November 1st, where you can put down 5%, maybe 10% on a multi, but even that it still falls within your debt to income ratio. So that's still not available for infinite deals. But I think once you run into one deal where you plop down 30% and you write that big check, you start to think, man, maybe there's got to be a better way than uh, doing this over and over again. Yeah. So then what led you to the the burst strategy? Were you sort of searching, talking to mentors, talking to other investors? Um, how did you kind of stumble upon a way to continue to grow your portfolio, even you know with DTI maxed or with limited funds? So... Um... What I what I did, what I did is um, I kind of looked into. I, I ran into a guy on YouTube who was doing full gut renovations, uh, in, in Philadelphia on just shells. Like he was just buying them from the sheriff's sale. Uh, he put in like 80, 90 k in renovations, full gut renovate them, blow the roof off, blow the back of the house off, and it was really the confidence that he had. He built out like a small YouTube channel. And he was recording himself opening the front door of these properties for the first time after buying them, like sight unseen. And the confidence he had was like very shocking to me. Once I saw that level of confidence on home renovations, I was just like, I need that confidence. That's that confidence with that. You can make a million dollars. So um, it wasn't that I had even gotten fully into the burst. I started to fall in love with gut renovations. And as I learned more about it, I started to see that equity creation where you could get a lender to fund that full gut renovation and then refinance out of it and hang on to those properties. So it's kind of something that I more more uh, or less stumbled upon out of a fascination with full gut renovation and wanting to get into that line. It was just kind of a light bulb that went off. Interesting. So did you end up reaching out to this person on YouTube? Or I was did. Along their journey? I didn't. I just followed the journey. Uh, for me, like seeing was believing. So it was really just trying to reverse engineer, you know, what I was uh, looking at in front of me. This is somebody that I ultimately did meet in person at some point, you know, along the journey, but uh, not someone I ever did business with or that became like a mentor or anything. It was really just the inspiration. I mean, I had already done enough at that point uh, in doing deals and, and buying and holding properties that I knew it was possible as long as I could assemble a construction crew and, and build at a certain cost. Um, yeah, the numbers kind of just wouldn't lie in that sense. Yeah. So, uh, Brian, why don't we kind of fast forward to where you are today and then we can sort of circle back to kind of, you know, the rest of your journey when you uh, sort of un uh, discovered the unlock of we're investing and doing gut renovations. Um, what does your portfolio look like uh, today? Yeah, I mean, the portfolio over the course of time is scaled to, you know, over over 300 um, deals and I'm still actively building. I, I kind of tell people you uh, at some point you just stop counting because it's not necessarily about the volume of deals. It's more about the systems, trying to perfect your systems, um, looking for other market opportunities and, and focus on that. The the end number kind of loses its significance. I would say after 100 uh, properties, you kind of stop counting to a degree. Yeah. I mean, well, that's a good place to be for we've done so much real estate that you don't even bother counting anymore. Yeah. Uh, cool. So then, uh, you know, from that inspiration point that you had of 
seeing the possibility of equity creation from doing gut renovations, what were the the, the next steps that uh, that you took? Did you reach out to like a wholesaler, try to find some off market deals, drive for dollars? Where did you go from there? I think you you need to achieve deal abundance, like deal overflow, in order to really scale. Like in 2019, I put 153 deals under contract to do that and, and close on them. Um, to do that, you need to well to close on 153, you need to put like 220 under contract because many will not close due to uh, title work. But that's just systems there, you know, going out and looking at deals everywhere. If you try to pick just off market, you're not going to have enough volume. Uh, 91% of the deals that move in America that are bought and sold happen on the MLS, on the public uh, listing. So you need to have a healthy volume of the MLS of just deals that are on Redfin, Zillow, and you need to have systems to get into them quickly, evaluate them, put them under contract, but also then go into the share of sales, the auctions, um, having a network of wholesalers. You really want deal flow coming in from everywhere. You mentioned a few times uh, trying to perfect your system. It's all about system. So let, let's unpack that a little bit for the, the listener. Uh, what does your system look like? And you know what does it mean uh, to sort of uh, perfect your systems uh, and to, to build and work on your systems? I think it's about I think it's about fine tuning kind of where you're where you're losing money because the renovation game is such a capital intensive game that you some people only look at profitability so they'll only look at deals and say well I got to buy deals for less money to make more money or I have to um, sell them for more money or get them appraised for more money to make more money well you could actually save money so doing things like getting a warehouse and ordering your materials in, at bulk and getting those 30, 40% discounts, that will lead to you having more money uh, at the end of any transaction. So where, where you can focus the majority of your time is actually on your development process, how you build houses, um, different ways of building that are faster or cheaper uh, to build, and then having systems where you can get materials to job sites faster than the competition, um, having in-house construction, all of these different things, uh, having your own dump trucks versus ordering dumpsters, you start to layer your business with as many efficiencies as possible, and they all add up to you know saving money on your bottom line. So there's a lot of that, but there, then there's just virtual assistants and um, having deal analysts and people who can screen deals and do things so that you don't burn out. Uh, a lot of people get into this game and they think that they're going to do everything themselves. They watch Property Brothers. They some people go as far as to stand in the house with a hammer and uh, try to build it themselves and think that they're going to accelerate that way. You might feel like you're saving money, but trust me, you're not. You're just not paying yourself for the time that you're spending on the property. But um, that is something that is truly not available. It's it's no longer a business or passive income if you're standing there doing it yourself. So putting those assistants in place and working your way outside of the hustle and bustle so that you can focus on whatever piece of the business that you're the best at that makes the most money uh, for your business, which for me is acquisitions, finding the best properties. Yeah, well, just a lot of really good things there that I would love to unpack. Uh, maybe let's start with, you, know, you kind of talked about refining your processes from, you know, in-housing things to sort of, you know, how you source materials. I guess at a meta level, what does your process look like for even sort of 
analyzing your business and kind of realizing like, hey, what are the areas that I want to focus on? Like, what are the areas that I could be more efficient on? How do I get more efficient in that area? So, you know, kind of what does that, that meta process of reviewing your business and analyzing it, what does that entail for you? I mean, I think there's always two uh, seasons when you're an entrepreneur. There's working on your business and working in your business. Most of, And you have to know the difference between the two or else you'll naturally just get stuck working in your business and never working on it. So um, I think when you first start, you, you do everything yourself so that you can learn the different roles uh, required. One thing that I learned as I scaled was that um, you can't, you can only scale so far, maybe four deals at once by yourself before you will collapse under the pressure of the operation. There's too much going on. But 90% of the work that you do as a developer is mental, maybe 99%, because you can't, you're not going to build a house better than a contractor who learned how to build houses from his uncle when he was eight years old, like he's been doing it for 30 years. You're just not. So your value is all mental. So as soon as you come to that aha moment, you start to strip out all of the mental tasks that are required for you to execute on a deal. And then you hire virtual assistants and then train them into those roles so that you can remove yourself. Once you can do that, you can stop working in your business so much and you'll have enough free time to focus on your business and look at the different sectors where the bottlenecks are. It could be like we're building them fast, but we're not tenanting fast enough. So not if you can't tenant fast enough, um, and you can build very fast, you might have to slow down your construction to match your tenanting speed, or you need to speed up your tenanting speed to match your construction, or you're going to run into a big bottleneck at some point. So it's truly like going through these iterate, what I would call iterations of building up people around you so you can step out a little bit further. And then with that purview, looking at the areas of your business that are experiencing the worst bottlenecks or the most expensive bottlenecks, and then solving those out. And then as you solve those out with new systems and new processes, training more virtual systems into those so that you can solve more other more profitable uh, issues. So um, a, a VA, a properly trained virtual assistant can far outpace their cost uh, with a return on, on uh, spend. Cool. What was the, the first virtual assistant that you hired? Like at what point in your journey? And what was the, the role that that person had at that time? Um, you always hire before you think you can afford it and before you think you need it. That's when you uh, hire. So, um, and, and most people try to wait. And you, if you wait, you'll just keep doing everything yourself and you'll never think you need it and you just won't scale. Uh, the first person I hired was a deal analyst, somebody who could screen deals, uh, source, source value, uh, chase down, you know, appraisers and architects and engineers and coordinate and just kind of be that deal analyst that could find the properties, uh, coordinate with the title companies and the lenders and just take me out of that aspect of it. So having that person, you know, one person in that role properly trained could find you 30, 40 deals a year by themselves. So um, doing that is going to be one of the most valuable things. You'll need that and then you'll need some type of boots on the ground person who can go in and inspect properties and go to City Hall and do some of the other things that physically um, take your time. So if you have that, that two person system, somebody on the ground and then air traffic control uh, behind the computer, that will allow you to scale exponentially. Cool. And so from those first couple of uh, folks that you brought on board, what does your team and what does your team structure look like today? 
geez, I mean, today there's essentially just virtual assistants in every sector. So there's tenanting, there's, you know, there's a leasing team, there's a property maintenance team, there's, um, you know, a, a rehab team, there's an acquisitions team, there's just, there's a uh, boots on the ground people, there's contractors, there's kind of everything that you would need in a full scale uh, development company. So it's, it's really just filling in every piece of the puzzle. So if I break down real estate into kind of the big sectors, there's finding deals, there's getting financing for deals, there's acquisitions, lending, there's um, title work, closing those deals, so follow through. Then there's uh, building. And within that rehab process, there's material sourcing and delivery, and then construction management, timelines, permits, engineers, inspections. So you start filling that, and then there's the you know tenant placement, um, licensing within the tenanting, uh, payments, and billing on the tenanting because some people are going to fall behind. There's evictions, there's tenant screenings, there's a lot that goes in there. So you just start to sector your company and then build people within. Are all of these different functions are they they all in house at this point in your company? Yeah, yeah they're all in house. And that's yeah. the goal is to get them all in house, but there's different ways to do it. You know, there, there's different ways to do it and structure it. But yeah, the goal is ultimately to get it all in house. Yeah. And, you know, each of these different areas, they're kind of an expertise unto themselves, right? Like construction management. There's people that specialize in that leasing and uh, tenanting. There's people that specialize in that collections, evictions, all that back end sort of stuff. There's people that specialize in that. And so, you know, it, how, were you able to um, sort of as a generalist come in and build out these different functions? And uh, I, I know that you're but you have to be able to train the VA. How did you build up that expertise in order to be able to train the VAs to handle those functions uh, and the boots on the, the ground as well uh, to handle these different functions for you? Yeah, you have to become a specialist. You have to You have to essentially know everything that the architect knows, everything that the engineer knows. Everything that the um, the permit expediter knows, everything that the lender knows, you have to specialize in all these individual roles, and that will happen over the course of time. I mean, you can always get into a mentorship program and get fast tracked to the knowledge, but um, outside of that, you have to go through the school of hard knocks, figure it out, um, pick a lot of brains to uh, get that information. But as you do that in each individual role, you become smarter than all the individual players because the lender still only knows lending. They don't need to know evictions. They don't need to know these other disciplines. So as you learn about all of them, you become essentially a mastermind within yourself versus the individual players who only know their individual roles. So um, you you want to do a lot of these things yourselves. Like the first time I, I did my first two evictions, I stood in front of the judge. I did it completely soup to nuts um, on tough tenants. And um, doing that, allowed me to know what an eviction attorney knows. So now when I interface with an eviction attorney and then train my VA to do that, I know exactly how things need to flow, what the law is, how things move. And and that is what allows you to outpace uh, the competition. Well, that makes sense. Uh, so shifting gears a little bit, Brian, you, know, you mentioned one of those functions that you have to be an expert in is uh, the financing piece of the puzzle. Uh, I know that in your journey, you've leveraged uh, creative financing. So would love if you can share with the listeners uh, a little bit about how you, uh, you know, how you're creative in, in sourcing capital for your deals. 
Yeah, I mean, look, one thing you have to know when you're going after some of these deals, especially when you get into uh, dealing with commercial level landlords, and there's a lot of them out there. There are a lot of burnout landlords or uh, guys who are just kind of aging out of the business. They just don't want the properties. And they're just like, look, I don't want to be managing these properties anymore. Um, you can leverage the existing debt that's already on those deals. So going to these, um, what I would call like a, a different form of motivated seller, somebody who's more of a burnout landlord or just aging out and structuring seller carrybacks where they will take a note and just carry it back. So instead of you putting down 30%, they're going to carry back 25% from the table in a in a um, completely custom structured note, seller financing note that would allow you to essentially just absorb a portfolio. And I've, I've done these types of um, structurings on, uh, you know, 100 property portfolios, 40 property portfolios, scattered site. And the the thing that you need to know in terms of mindset is that these people are looking for. So if you can come up with a scenario where they don't have to manage, but they can still get a little bit of cash flow, even in the form of a seller carry back note, they're very likely to do a deal. Uh, with you. If you can get them up to a number that they're comfortable with, this could allow you to absorb a portfolio, make capital improvements to it with another uh, construction type of lender or hard money lender, and then refinance everybody out of the deal uh, at the end of the day and just absorb portfolios. So it's truly a specialized knowledge. I mean, I came across this knowledge very early on in the journey at a Robert Kiyosaki conference. This was like 15 years ago, and it was so over my head. I just didn't believe it. I was just like, no, nah, there's no way this stuff exists. People aren't going to go for this. But I didn't have enough knowledge, enough base uh, level knowledge. And then I re-stumbled upon it uh, years into the journey after I'd done over 100 deals. And because I had that experience of how things worked and title companies and transfers, I started to understand, wow, this is actually real and it's super powerful. And now I help you know a lot of my mentees to do it themselves. That, that sounds awesome. Um, so, Brian... You know, we've talked about your strategy. A lot of it is, you know, around gut renovations and the, the burrs. A big part of the burr is that cash out refinance component at the, the end of the, the deal being stabilized. In today's environment with interest rates where, where they are, would you say the, the burr is, is the burr method dead? Is it on CPR sort of? Uh, <laughs> today? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think the market uh, today is in flux. Is, uh, in flux. So. I saw um, recently, October 1st, Philadelphia and a couple of other markets increase their rents on um, on Section 8. So in Philadelphia, six, sixth largest city in America, Section 8 rents increased 30 to 60 percent across the board, um, which is massive. So this would take a property that wasn't cash flowing at all via birth strategy because of a, you know, seven and a half percent 30 year fixed rate. And now it's cash flowing five, six hundred a month because the rents just went way up. So what we're starting to see uh, nationally, actually uh, in 57% of the uh, markets in America, rents have increased, some as much as 25, 30, 60, you know, 60%, some as much of 100% in some pockets of some markets. So you're seeing the market adjusting now. And this is something that nobody's talking about, uh, quite frankly, is the, the market is not just gonna sit there as rates go up and do nothing. So you, you're seeing two wrinkles already. One is uh, it was just approved for Fannie and Freddie to back uh, 5% or 10% down payments, even on multifamily, four 
uh, two to four unit uh, buildings where before you needed 25 to 30% down. So that is a market adjustment and it's specifically to incentivize people to still continue to invest and get higher cash on cash returns, even at today's rates. But then you're seeing rents in, 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 uh, inflating and people aren't talking about that, but that's what's happening is the rents will inflate to offset the carrying cost of higher rates. So you can still do the burst strategy in cash flow. So it's still a, a great market. I would argue right now there's a window of opportunity because rates are projected to go back down as we get uh, into 2024, closer to 2025. You're going to have this window where rents are super high. Rates are ticking back down and you can go in and, and grab uh, a deal. In fact, I would probably just grab the deal now at the higher rates and refinance as rates go back down over the next two years. Just refinance and unlock more cash flow. Yeah, right. So it, it's kind of like a built-in upside, right? Like if the deal still makes sense at today's rates, it's more yeah. likely than not that rates are going to come down. And so that provides a nice upside lever when those rates, um, you know, hopefully do do come back down. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that makes sense. So, you know, Brian, you touched on Section 8 a little bit. Uh, and I know you're in the affordable housing space as well. Are those kind of two uh, two parts of the, the, the same or uh, affordable housing in Section 8? Yeah, I mean, Section 8 can be great. I mean, there's a lot to uh, learn about it in, in terms of how it works. It does work different in different municipalities. But in terms of uh, profitability, I mean, it's like the closest thing to a municipal bond. I mean, it's kicking out government income. Uh, we, we have plenty of properties where Section 8 pays 100% of the rent. So it eliminates a lot of fear. Uh, Section 8 is now trying to compete within the market because they got a, what I would call like a little arrogant with a low interest rate environment in terms of their rent negotiations. There was a time 10 years ago where Section 8 rents were far superior to market rents in most areas. So there was an incentive to go Section 8 because only 30% of landlords do Section 8 at all. So um, now they're kind of returning to that competition level where they're trying to outpace market rents. So I think now is a really good time to get in, uh, put a, a property on a two-year, three-year lease and just lock in that cash flow uh, you know, for a long haul. Yeah, and those Section 8 rents do go up over time, uh, like you alluded to earlier, uh, just like the, the market rent. So, uh, and, you know, steady, consistent government uh, cash flow, who doesn't who doesn't like that? Uh, yeah. In terms of uh, co-living, uh, rent by the room, is that also something that, that you pursue with uh, kind of the affordable housing solutions that you work on? Yeah, I mean, the, the purest solution to the affordable housing crisis is co-living. It's some form of co-living. That's where you would uh, take a single family property and break it up into a series of master, master bedrooms and with uh, bathrooms only accessible through the uh, bedroom and then rent them out individually as master suites with a shared common area, shared kitchen. Um, and that can be highly profitable because that product doesn't exist in most uh, major markets. All you have to do in terms of pricing is undercut the price of a studio in center city anywhere and you will have a captive audience. There are millions of Americans living on their parents' uh, couch or in the basement that are looking for that first property that they can rent, uh, utilities included, and kind of get their first foot out the door. So um, that is highly profitable. You don't need any vouchers, any government assistance, no low income housing tax credits. It's just profitable. I mean, you can take a property that will rent for 13, 1400 a month and put three master suites in it, rent each suite for 900 a month and pull out you know, 2700 out of a, a you know a property that would rent for 13 1400 a month so 
you can really boost your cash flow that way. And um, there's also midterm rentals, renting the traveling nurses with a similar uh, shared living type of concept. So th there's a lot of money in co-living. Just very few people know about it. It's still a subsector of the industry. Yeah. What would be a couple of the impediments off the top of my head? It seems like maybe the, the management and the operations of that would be different because would those be three or four different master suites that are rented to three or four different groups? Or is that sort of one group that comes together and they rent it and they kind of divide it up amongst themselves? How would that typically work? Yeah, it would be, I mean, it is under one master lease, but you could bring in three like-minded individuals, say three grad students, even if they didn't know each other. Um, you do some personality testing screening to make sure you're not you know, moving in the dark triad into the group. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's just putting like-minded individuals together. There can be, there are bottlenecks and wrinkles. So you definitely want to do this with somebody who uh, understands the game. And um, there are very few property management companies who will do co-living. I'm one of the few. You know, I, I recently um, started my property management company uh, externally facing, not just internally for my assets, but uh, external facing to kind of solve that and be a solution for some people who want to do it in Philly um, so that they have that co-living solution because it's there's a different way to tenant. There's a different way to structure leases. There's a different you know management process to it altogether. Yeah. And then you talked about building out master suites in these bedrooms. Is that also like a significant impediment in terms of like the, the plumbing may not be set up to, to have a master uh, suite in all of the bedrooms. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can version of the, the rent by the room model. Yeah. You can do like, you can typically add it in if you need to, you can convert, you know, office space or bedroom into a, into a master bath, but this strategy works best on gut renovations projects that are in shell condition anyway, uh, that are going to need gut renovations. This is where you want to start to think outside of the box. How do I re on this property to maximize cash flows. That could be, if you're going to section eight it, um, take a three bedroom, turn it into a four because section eight is paying based upon the voucher size and the bedroom size. So that fourth bed could get you an extra four or $500 a month in cash flow um, or redesigning it as a co-living property and just building uh, those master suites, building the right plumbing stacks and kind of running everything the correct way. But that's where having that, the value of doing so many, you know, doing hundreds of full gut renovations allows me to think outside of the box at that level and really execute. Yeah, no, it makes, uh, makes a lot of sense. I mean, as you're talking, I am kind of thinking, you know, our housing stock is pretty inflexible, right? Like it's either you own a house or you rent a house, or if it's not one of those two things, you rent an apartment and that's kind of it, right? Uh, there's not yeah. a whole lot of or nuance or like flexibility or like other uh, other solutions for, for people, but there's a lot of different use cases, certainly for, for people that just need a place to live. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So you have to, if you start thinking outside of the box, you'll have very little competition in this game. This is how yeah. you not only like looking for different deals in different places, but just thinking bigger or thinking uh, differently than the competition allows you to outbid them and still make a profit. Yeah. Uh, Brian, what does your geographic footprint look like in terms of the, the market? Uh, you know, where do you live versus where are all of your properties uh, that, that you operate in? Yeah, I invest out of town, so I'm I'm a north I'm a northeast uh, coast type of guy. You know, I grew up in Philly. I live in New York. I went to Columbia University. Um, so I invest everywhere from um, New Jersey down to Delaware and kind of I mean uh, down to Maryland and Baltimore and kind of in a straight line. So Jersey, Philly, Delaware, uh, Baltimore, 
also Texas. So, um, there, you know, definitely investing out of town has been one of my, my uh, principles. You want to put your money where it goes further. If you're in a priced out market, get out of it. Get, if you're in a non, uh, landlord friendly, uh, city, get out of it because all of these things play into your long term uh, cash flow ability. We'll call it if that's even a word, but, um, you just want to be in the right market. So if you're in a place like I do have mentees in California or on the West Coast, where I would say the average cost of a house is like 20x the median income, somewhere between 15 to 20x. East Coast and most of the markets that I'm investing in, the cost of a house is like five to six x the median income, which means it's not in a bubble territory. It's not likely to crash. The average American can afford the top of market housing there. So um, th those are the markets I like to invest in, where taxes are low, prices are low, and rents are high. That equals cash flow. That's the equation. Cool. And then with experience in all of those different markets, I assume you sort of kind of templatized what it means for you to go into a market, right? Kind of like the steps that you take to analyze the market and uh, to build your team in that market. Yeah. I mean, if you could do it remotely, if you can invest remotely, like I live in New York, I invest in Philly. So that's, you know, uh, two hours each way, four hour round trip. You can do that in Philly. I could invest in Texas. I can invest in Baltimore. I could, it's the same exact systems, Cleveland. All you need is boots on a person, air traffic control person. Um, you need some other resources, lenders, architects, engineers. Um, but you can reverse engineer that system. Yeah, it's really just setting it up in a place uh, where it makes sense. Yeah. Cool. And then do you have, you know, Brian, he said you're sort of past the point where you count the number of deals that you've already done. But what about looking forward? Do you have kind of a vision for where you want to take your business uh, and your portfolio in, in the in the future? Well, I mean, I'm somebody who views themselves as, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep building until I drop dead, essentially. So um, the, they say the reward for good work is more work. So I'm just looking forward to more work to continue to build. Um, I'm working on some uh, commercial level projects, like 100 unit uh, building projects that I'll be, um, you know, kind of rolling out over the next year or so. Those projects move a little bit slower. I am going to keep hitting singles and doing the residential single family to multifamily uh, play. And then, uh, you know, my real goal is is I want to have more of a national impact in uh, C-class neighborhoods in particular, rebuilding the neighborhoods that need the most uh, work. And the way that, you know, I intend to do that is by building more developers, going out there and just building more people who are uh, from these neighborhoods, from these communities that lack the knowledge and resources and tapping them in, uh, getting them coached up. And, and that's really the way to um, have the impact that I want nationally. I could build another thousand properties or I could build a thousand developers who can build a million properties. And I, I think the impact is uh, much bigger by going out and spending time building developers. Awesome. Well, uh, Brian, this has been a great conversation, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask one more question for those. For those that are listening on audio, you wouldn't see this, but Brian is wearing a shirt that says nine to five job at the top. And then it has a big red line that strikes through it. Yes. So, it's 24 seven cash flow for the 24 seven yeah, cash flow. About your shirt. Uh, yeah. And means. yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, you know, the nine to five job. It, it, we're, we're all about 24 seven cash flow. So um, this is kind of our, our paraphernalia, you know, our, um, our apparel uh, that we have here. And, um, you know, this is, this is what we do, man. We're, we're all about cash flow. Um, we hustle for our last name, not our first. And uh, we just stay focused on the main thing. And the main thing is building cash flow. So even if you're working a nine to five now, 
you just want to take your money and set it aside and, and focus on that long term cash flow. The nine to five uh, can be good in a sense that it can be a partner that gives you money to build your dream. But uh, you don't want to stay locked into the nine to five mentally uh, as the ex the sole source of income or cash flow. You got to have something outside of it. You have to bet on yourself. Awesome. Brian, if uh, listeners want to find out more, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to get a hold of you, uh, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me on YouTube. Brian loves cash flow. Brian loves cash flow on YouTube. Uh, you can find me on Instagram, Brian Grimes underscore 247 CFU for the 247 Cash Flow University. Uh, on LinkedIn, Brian Grimes Real Estate. All of those uh, platforms will backtrack to a free real estate training that I put together for you guys on uh, www.workwithgrimes.com forward slash cash flow, workwithgrimes.com forward slash cash flow. It's a free real estate training. It'll show you how to acquire properties for pennies on the dollar all across the country. You don't want to miss out on that free offer. Awesome. And we'll make sure to get links to all of those in the, the show notes. Brian, thanks again for stopping by the Barstool Investor Podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Okay, that's it for today, folks. Thank you so much for joining us. If you are new to Barstool Investor and you like this content, please don't hesitate to subscribe to this podcast on whatever is your podcast medium of choice. We also have a newsletter that goes out monthly and to which you can subscribe to, meetups that happen in various parts of California, and articles that are posted very regularly. You can find all of those free resources on www.barstoolinvestor.com. And of course, if you like this episode, please don't hesitate to leave a nice review for us so others can learn about this show too. See you next time.